Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today's July the 16th, 2018. It is a Monday, and since it's Monday, it's Listener Feedback Show. And I've got some good feedback to, uh, to talk about to you with. I've got today, thoughts on trick ways to invest your money. That's really not how the question comes in, but that's how I'm going to approach it. Like, the little tricks that we can do to make investing easy and, and why usually the logic in them is actually flawed. Because it's, it's trying to create a shortcut to something that has very specific rules that we can follow and it will always work if we do that. Next, why I think the U.S. is the last nation. They should complain about election interference. Uh, and I'm in good company, as Rand Paul also seems to feel that way. Question on aquaponics and city water, specifically involving chlorine and chloramine. Uh, teachers are complaining now that they, some of them anyway, have to work year-round, because it's not fair that they would have to work year-round. There's some irony there. I'll save it for when I get to it. Uh, what email I program? What email I program? What email program I use for the Survival Podcast and my other online stuff, and why I use that one? Uh, my thoughts on paying off a mortgage and how that relates to the new tax law. That's tied into a article that I think is very fairly written called "Is Paying Off Your House the Right Move?" And we'll talk a little bit about why we make decisions with math. Okay, I mean that's that's what we're really going to talk about there. Uh, we're going to have advice for the first-time home buyer in a hot market like Dallas-Fort Worth right now. A very sincere and very real question. Somebody has to make a real-life decision on, and a new example of rise of the robots. And we will have all of that and more in just a moment. Before we get to your feedback today, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Uh, I, I, I keep saying it, but it's because it's true. I, I can't tell you how big a fan of the Ridge Wallet I've become. It's, it, it took about a month to really become a big fan, and the part, part of that reason was simply what I call the grab-ass game. So I've carried a wallet in my back pocket since I was a teenager, a big old lump wallet that's probably not good for your posture. That's why I always tried to make it a policy when I would drive my vehicle I would take my wallet out of my pocket and put it in a little cubby hole where I could reach it easily if one of those uh, road pirates pulled me over or something like that but also I mean the biggest reason was you're not sitting on that lump and I tried to make it a habit that you know when I sat down to do work for a couple hours or something like that I would take my wallet out and set it on the table those things have often led to me not having my wallet when I actually needed it. it's either in the cubby hole or on my desk and I'm somewhere where I'm trying to buy something with my looks and I, I can't pull it off when I went to the Ridge wallet the beautiful thing was I never have a reason to leave my wallet. It's a small, compact metal wallet that stays in my front pocket. And uh, it works fantastic for that. I never have trouble finding it, and it never screws up my posture, messes up my back, what have you. Um, the problem was for like, you know, a couple of months at least, every time I would go somewhere and get out of the car, habit would kick in, and I was slapping my own ass cheeks trying to find my wallet. Uh, once I got over that, I realized the wisdom of the minimalism of the Ridge Wallet. And it protects us from RFID uh, tag theft. 
And they have some other really cool products, including a wonderful urban backpack that I used on a trip recently. I really, really uh, got a lot out of that. Great battery backup system for your uh, mobile devices. And they're coming out with new stuff every day. They have a great cell phone case. It's, it's just a great company. I'm glad to have them as a partner. You can learn more at RidgeWallet.com. And if you're an MSB member, you can get discounts on anything you buy at RidgeWallet.com. Next up, our other relatively new sponsor, ButcherBox.com. My ButcherBox came this weekend. Uh, it's like, it's like meat Christmas every month. The box comes and like, I usually log in and change some things around after each order shows up and get some different things. And I usually do that. Like when the box shows up, I make my changes for next month. And the reason I do that is so I don't forget to do it. And then by the time it comes, I've kind of forgotten what I've done. It's like, Ooh, I got a big pork roast. Look, I got two things of baby back ribs. Ooh, free bacon. And like, it's just awesome. Butcher box is like having a professional shopper. Go to the best meat market you can send them to and selectively pick out the meat that you're looking for. It's always great quality, pastured, free range, you know, grass-fed, stuff like that. It's all just excellent, excellent product. Uh, tonight I'm actually cooking uh, ribeyes from ButcherBox for myself, my wife, and my grandson is going to stay with us and watch the final two episodes of Cobra Kai, which is not related to our sponsors, but the best, one of the best reboots of any series I've ever seen in my life. Uh, is Cobra Kai on YouTube Red. You guys should check that out. Anyway, ButcherBox.com also does a discount for members of the MSB. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, uh, log into your MSB account, and click on Benefits to learn more. And real quick, before we get to all your feedback, just uh, remember you can help support this show by joining the Members Support Brigade, or MSB for short, MSB. Uh, I'll tell you what. If you, if you join and you don't think it's worth the money, email me. I'll give you your money back. How's that? I mean, and I I can't do more for a product to you know to tell you how much confidence I have in it than that. I have actually never had anybody email me in almost ten years and tell me, Jack, it's just not what I thought it would be. I'd like my money back, please. It's never happened. I did have one sale that I ran for for people who was counted as expired and said if if you don't think the deal I'm offering is really great, I'll give it to you for it. One guy out of like a thousand. Uh, that said, oh, I don't think it's that good. I want my free account. And I'm like, all you wanted was your free account. Fine, here you go. But I've never had anybody really say, like, I don't think we get our money's worth out of MSB. So consider joining today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And again, sign up. Sign up. Take a look at all the discounts. See if you think you can use them over the next couple, three months to start, you know, getting a feel for it. If you don't like it, if you think, Jack, I really don't think this is worth what you asked for it, send me an email. Tell me your username. I'll refund your money. What else can you say to show you have confidence in your product? All right, so let's start out with a, a question that is what I call a typical trick way to invest money. I'm not going to pick on Matt who sends this in. Um, and I am going to talk about some other ways that people talk about doing this. So let's just take a look at this. So Matt says, hey, hi, Jack, question. What are your thoughts on increasing the number of dependents that are claimed for taxes and using the extra money in a paycheck to pay down debt, invest, start a business, etc.? Details. This is something several of us used to do in the food service industry around the holidays when overtime would be 30 hours a week or more, so minimal taxes were taken out, and we could get a fair amount extra in the paycheck. 
This could be done a few times a year with no penalty on our tax return. My thoughts are if the extra money were used to snowball debt or invest in starting a business, that would be better than giving the Fed a loan till tax season. Feel free to pass this on to John Pugliano if it's not appropriate for you or better for an expert counsel show. Thanks for an entertaining, informative podcast community you've built here. Uh, appreciate all you do, Matt in upstate New York. Yeah, Matt, as I'm saying, like this is a typical um, trick way. I'm going to trick myself into doing what I should do anyway. And, and you did have a unique issue being in the food service industry, so I'm imagining you means like serving and waiting tables and stuff, where you have a very low hourly wage. But you know, if you're if you're working 30 hours of overtime on that hourly wage, you can have this you know reasonable little amount of money. But it's not huge against your total earnings overall. So I guess what you're saying is you go to HR and increase your number of dependents. Only when that extra work's coming, so your tax withholding goes down during that period of time, and then once that period of extra work comes, you go remove it and let it go back up, so you have the your evening. And I, I see. Let me let me give you some other examples of how I've heard people do stuff like this. Whenever you write a check to pay a bill or pay for groceries, round it up to the next dollar amount, and at the end of every month, figure out how much extra money you have and move it to savings. That would be another way I've heard this done. Um, I've even, you know, people that will say, well, round it up to there's $5. So if you write a check for $134, you write it to $135 in your, your ledger. But if you wrote it for $136, you round that up to $140. And that really adds up at the end of the month. Take that money and, and move it. And there's a bunch of ways that I, I have heard to do this. And in the end, I think we need to go richest man in Babylon here. A portion of what I earn is mine to keep. Okay? And all we're doing with these little gimmicky things is trying to create a way to trick ourselves into taking some portion of our earnings and setting them aside somewhere and treating them differently than the rest of our earnings, which is exactly what we should do. But this number in, in the, the ancient wisdom of the richest man in Babylon that's so ancient, it's actually from the 1920s. Uh, that book came out during the Depression, and it was uh, well-received at the time, and for good reason. And uh, But it's to put at least a minimum of a tenth. If thou shalt earneth $100, thou shalt put a tenth dollars into thy, you know, thy own account that is for thy own bidding. And thou shalt never spendeth that money or squandereth it. Thou shalt either save it, invest it, or loan it, and rent it to someone else for interest back. Thou shalt protect thy underlying investment and seek security above return with that tenth of all that I earn, right? Paraphrasing the book. And when we start saying, well, what I'll do is I'll add one more dependent, and then I'll figure out what the difference is, and I'll save that. A tenth of all that I earneth, minimum, shall be set aside for you and you alone to keep. Right? But see, what I'm going to do is round up my check. A tenth of what I earneth should be set aside for you to keep. Because I've heard it done the other way too. I'm going to claim zero on my taxes, make sure I get a big return, and then when my tax return comes back to me, I'm going to put all that money into investment. A tenth of all that I earn shall be set aside for years and years alone to keep. But see, what I'm going to do is a tenth of what I earn shall be set aside for thyself and thy alone to keep. A portion that you earn is yours alone to keep. Period. And all these little gimmicks do is attempt to create a behavior 
that we should be training ourselves to do as a byproduct of a gimmick. And, and therefore, we really don't need to be engaging in them. I mean, and really, the tenth should be a rule. I earned a dollar today. That's all I earned. We'll put a dime away. I earned ten. Put a dollar away. I earned a hundred. Put ten bucks away. Period. If you do it, what you'll find is most people over their careers and over their lives earn more money over time. And if you adapt to saving a tenth of whatever amount you're making today, then saving a tenth of whatever amount you make tomorrow will be easy to do. Assuming you follow that normal trajectory and increase your earnings over time, which you should be doing. Now, there's a lot more to investing in wealth development than that. I won't go back into that uh, richest man in Babylon well um, right away or deeper right now because John Pugliano and I are actually thinking about doing a podcast on that thing alone. But, boy, I really recommend you look at that. Now, there is a different question here. How much money do I let my employer send to the government on my behalf in this uh, this uh, piracy trust fund to pay the extortion fee they call income tax? And the answer is enough that it doesn't bite you in the ass. And that depends on how you manage your money and how well you plan things accordingly. In general, I overpay every year. I know I'm going to overpay, and the only question is, well, how much? And I do that because I do not want to be caught off guard on the other side. I also have variable income from variable streams and investments. And my taxes, in the words of my own CPA, are complicated and difficult. Okay, If when I worked a job, I never claimed the maximum amount of dependence, but I also didn't claim zero. So at one point, I would have been able to legitimately claim three, and I claimed two. And, and that worked out pretty well. That made the return minimal, but always something. And if I did have to write a check, let's say I owed them some money on a year or two where I had some other things going on, because I've always had some entrepreneurial stuff going on, you know, I might have had to write them a check for 500 bucks, 800 bucks, whatever, and, and I'm okay with that. What I never want to do is be in a business situation where I'm managing cash flow, and one day I go do my taxes and I find out, holy crap, you owe them six grand. Because that throws everything off for a wanker, right? Uh, so managing your prepayments, your withholding, etc., has got to be done separately from I'm doing it so I can invest money. Because what we're doing is we're thinking gambler-like now, like this is a windfall or something. What we should be thinking is this is how much I earn, this is how much I save, this is how much is set aside to pay off debts, this is how much is set off aside for uh, mandatory expenses, rent, electricity, etc., and this is the amount that's discretionary. And if we do that, then all of this other stuff is meaningless. And well, I'll get an e email from somebody, well, I did the roundup thing, or I did the this, and I did the that, and it worked. Okay, how well did it work if you were to go back retroactively and say, I shall put aside a tenth of all I earn as mine to keep, and you had done that instead, how well did your gimmick work? And the answer, nine times out of ten, will be, well, not as good, if you're honest about it. And the times where it worked out better, then what that meant is, when you did your budget, had you done a budget, you would have determined, I can put aside 12%, 15%, 20% of my, my earnings. And if you would have done that, you would have been in the same place or better. The thing is, the concept of per dollar earned, X goes into savings and is mine to keep, is scalable and constant and habit-forming. It becomes a thing. 
you don't not pay your electric bill this year. You don't not pay your uh, your mortgage this 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 month. You do not not pay your taxes. You do not not see. You have these things, and you say these are bills. When your investment fee against your earnings becomes a bill in your mind, then when you get a big windfall, you just put more money in there. And when you have a lean period, you just put less money in there. And it always works into your lifestyle quotient. It always works itself out. And it is the only time-tested, proven way that the average person can actually build significant wealth. Because the average person is not going to become the next Bill Gates. You're not going to win the lottery, etc. And the most powerful asset you will ever own is your earning capacity which is something that's very unique in the world of, 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 earning, uh, of wealth because it's one of the few assets that goes and starts out as a fairly flat asset, goes into a rapidly appreciating asset, will eventually usually plateau, and then goes into decline as we age. And we can do less work, etc. So we have this kind of Cinderella period where we have gotten enough experience and we have enough physical vitality and energy to maximize that in the middle of that bell curve. And that is the time when it is most critical that we be investing that 10% minimum. And again, that's a minimum. And it's easier to establish as a habit when you're making $500 every two weeks than it is when you're making $5,000 a week and you have never done it before. Because now you've already spent that money before it's earned. So don't take the shortcuts, run the marathon. It's boring, but it works because it's habit. So uh, John, who sends me a lot of really cool stuff, man. John's almost like a one-man research crew for me. Um, he sends me this off Apple News in Politico. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul uh, said Moscow would not admit that it interfered with the two 2016 election, but he also said we all do it. And, and I, I, I completely agree, but what I, I think is maybe more important is that we probably do it more than anybody else. So I'm not going to read the article with what Rand had to say. It's really not a long article, but you can read it yourself. Uh, the, the basic upshot is, you know, uh, Rob Rosenstein, not Rob, Rob Rosenstein and uh, Mueller together, I guess, have indicted these 12 Russian military officials for hacking the Democratic National Convention in 2016. And Rand Paul basically says such cyber intrusions in other countries' elections were common on the world stage and suggests the United States, while not morally equivalent to Russia, provoked the Kremlin's stealth attacks. He said we all do it. What we need to do is make sure our electoral process is protected. They're not going to admit it the same way we're not going to admit we were involved in the Ukraine elections or the Russian elections. And I believe Senator Paul is correct. We all do it. What I think maybe Senator Paul isn't saying is there's probably not a country that's interfered in more other nations' elections and political processes than the United States of America. We have absolutely, we're not morally equivalent. I mean, I think there's some ways that we are morally superior to the, to the Russians in, in our, our, our way we act in the world. In, in the concept of interfering with the elections of other nations, we are morally inferior. And and when I've actually I've, I'm not going to go deep into it today, but I've actually presented evidence of this in debates online, and eventually the truth comes out from people who defend it. Well, and they'll they'll blatantly say it when you make it where they can't deny it. I'm okay when we do it because we're doing it for good. 
No. See, we're not doing it for good. We're doing it for our own benefit. For what we think, whether we're right or wrong in that, in our estimation, what's best for America and America's interests in the world. Well, that's what everybody else is doing. And, and I'll also put it to you this way. I found it very interesting recently that someone asked um, former President George Bush, George Bush II, how many times Vladimir, Vladimir Putin kept his word. And he responded something to the effect of, well, ask me how many times he broke his word. And, okay, so the person humored him and did, he said, never. Never. Now, that doesn't mean that everything Putin says is, is the truth. That's not what that means. What it means is when we've actually had a firm agreement, leader to leader, with Putin, if he's committed to something, unless we violated it, they kept it. The reason I found that interesting is that going all the way back into the Cold War, with people like Stalin and Khrushchev, former presidents have made similar statements about both of those men, as apparently evil as they were, that they, when they did say, we will do this, they did. Or we won't do this, they did. I also found it interesting today, I heard bits and pieces of the press Uh, around the Putin-Trump summit, that when questioned about these 12 officials who supposedly hacked the Democratic National Committee, Vladimir Putin said, we have a treaty in effect between our two countries that allows you to file a process to have these people interrogated by our law enforcement officers. And if you want, your law enforcement officials can come to Russia and observe the interrogation. People say, well, that's not fair because they're going to do their own thing. Well, hold on. What he said is, well, what we would expect that is there's certain people we actually would like reciprocity on that, who we would like investigated by your law enforcement officials. And, of course, we would want our law enforcement officials to be able to travel to America and observe that interrogation. So either the interrogation by your own side is, 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 is a dog and pony show and, and, and insignificant. It doesn't matter, which would be the excuse not to go to Russia. Or it does matter, which would be the excuse not to let them come here. I just think our country, many times, the people making these decisions really believe they're doing the right things for the right reasons. And I think sometimes even when it looks kind of nefarious, maybe we are. But we have a real problem with anybody else also doing it. And then we want to act like, well, that's what the bad people do and we don't do that. We spied on Iceland. Do you understand that? We spied when Iceland basically threw out the banksters and said, we're not participating in this mess and we're not letting our people take a bath over this mess with the financial meltdown. We were trying, we, we were trying to leverage them on the back end and we were spying on Iceland. We know this because WikiLeaks. So, by the way, the reason I went that circular route around to WikiLeaks is. Do you know that supposedly Russia is the one that hacked Podesta's emails and Hillary's emails and the DNC? However, and this is, I have run this down and this is factual, there was a deal being worked by the FBI with Julian Assange, which was the following. I will give you conclusive proof of where I got this from in return for immunity from you. 
Not return for immunity from the supposed thing with Scandinavia to Finland or Denmark or whatever the hell place wants him. Right? But he's really afraid of the United States. That's why he won't leave the embassy that's in England. That's the Ecuadorian embassy. Right? So you guys stop trying to come after me for this shit, and I'll give you conclusive proof of where I got the information. Now, this would be something to at least pursue to the point of determining whether or not it was valid, but our buddy James Comey put the kibosh on it and said, just, just drop it. Interesting. We're so worried about exactly how this got out, and the one man that says, hey, I got proof. I can show you conclusively how I got this, and by showing you that, you'll be able to tell who did it we don't really want to hear from. Now, I'm not saying he should be granted immunity, though I personally would. I'm saying to have one person be able to say, just kill that, it tells you something's wrong. Our country has flat out overthrown governments in Central and South America over the last 60, 70 years. We've involved inst inserted ourselves into everybody's freaking democratic process. And then we try to sit back like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to us. When apparently, by our own government's stance, the horrific things that Russia did was they say they were able to get in and look at election results, though they didn't change any, which we kind of have reporting in real time anyway. So I'm not sure how bad that is, but it doesn't sound like it really affected the election. In fact, our own government says they didn't, including the people that are out to hang Trump say that they didn't. That they were able to hack into the Democratic National Committee and Hillary servers because there were dummies with passwords that sent them unknowingly to supposedly Russian operatives. They sent them to somebody anyway, who then were able to just log in and take the shit. So they, the de Democrats were dumb enough to give up their passwords with phishing, basically. And that the American people were able to know things like Hillary Clinton really did store classified information on a server in her bathroom. That is the truth, not a lie. That other third parties did actually get their hands on it. That is the truth, not a lie. Uh, that things like money was routed to pay for Chelsea's freaking wedding that was supposed to be going to Haiti. That that's true and not a lie. All of these things. That the Democrats really did rig the election against Bernie, and eventually when that came out, a, a federal court said that they had the right to do that. And that interfered with our election. So the interference we're, being, we're blaming on Russia is that the American people actually had the facts. Now you might say, well, they didn't have the facts on the Republican side. I'll agree. I'll completely agree. But I don't think that was because somebody didn't want them to have it. I think it's because they weren't able to get what they were looking for. And I agree with Paul. We need to make sure that our elections are secure. So how can we make sure our elections are secure? We can go back to what we always did, paper ballots. That way there's a paper trail. Everything can be counted and accounted for. We could also, like, require voter ID. Like, that would be actually, like, really a good idea. It's not racist to require ID. It, you, can, you have to use ID to get on an airplane. You have to use ID to get a loan. You have to use ID to collect Social Security benefits. Right? I mean, the, the concept that you can then vote without an ID is just ridiculous. So we could make sure that people were voting, were actually voting, and voting once if we actually cared. But I mean, the biggest thing we could do is paper ballots. 
And then when somebody cries that there's a hanging chat or they didn't understand the ballot, well, then, you know, if you're too stupid to vote properly, then you vote improperly. And we would be able to, whenever there's a question, say, well, this something doesn't smell right here. Let's go bring in independent third parties to physically count every ballot. And we can still use computers to tabulate them like we always did. But then we have a way to go back. When people are using a touchscreen to vote, If you do hack it, you can change it. And even if no one ever does, the fact that it can be done will always put every election, especially close ones, especially ones with a lot of anger on both sides, into question, will always cause questions of legitimacy in the results. And the, the master stroke of the Russian interference, whatever level they actually did, in 2016, is how stupidly we're behaving in 2018. Because I don't think that anybody changed their vote from Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump because of, a, of, a, of an ad that the Russians bought, or because of a fake news story that was run on some site that was obviously fake. I think in general, Americans voted based on what they wanted. And other nations are going to try to influence that. And we don't fight it by screaming and yelling and acting like children. We fight it by saying, hey, people, this shit happens. Make sure you know why you're voting for what you're voting for. And we, 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 and we fight it by making sure that you can't tamper with results. And the only true way to do that is by having a hard paper ballot. There may be a day when that changes. I think we could actually use cryptocurrency technology, i.e. blockchain, to make it impossible to cheat in an election. Well, we haven't done that. So since we haven't done that, we have a simple solution. It's a piece of paper with a hole in it. It's that simple. Anyway, with that, let's move on to another one. But yeah, we're the last people that should be bitching about anybody interfering with anybody else's sovereign nation. Because we've been doing it, man, for almost as long as we've existed. But certainly in the last 70 years, this nation has stuck its fingers and stuck its nose in everybody's business. In fact, I would say we've stuck our nose up everybody's freaking ass. And what we really should do, If we want to have any moral high ground, it's knock it the hell off and stop interfering in other nations' elections. Stop bringing up freaking strawmen like Crimea. I am so sick of Crimea. I know I'm a little political today, and we're going to change some other subjects in a second. But Crimea, do you know the story of the... Here, let me give you the short story of Crimea. Crimea was part of the Ukraine. It broke off and became an independent republic known as the Republic of Crimea. And... Ukrainian nationalists started basically a terror attack, an ongoing sustained terror attack, and an attempt to reclaim Crimea for Ukraine. The only reason Crimea was ever part of Ukraine is because Khrushchev was from the Ukraine, and he basically gave it to Ukraine because he wanted to retire there and have it be part of the Ukraine. So the, the, the Crimea for hundreds of years, was part of Russia, not Ukraine, prior to and, dur and during the USSR. After it became independent and this crap was going on, there was local militia in Crimea that tried to put a stop to it. Putin did send in supplies, support, and troops eventually. At the request of the leader of Crimea, and I'm not sure if he was prime minister or they call him president, whatever, the, the, the head guy in Crimea said basically, help, we're screwed. And eventually a, a free and open election was held. 
And the, the choices were the Crimea, Crimea should return to the Ukraine or Crimea should return to Russia. Those were the two choices, to be fair. There wasn't a third one. We should go back to being independent. The results of that election, 96.77% of the people of Crimea voted, in fact, to return to the Russian Federation. 96%. Let's say they had voter fraud of 20%, right? Well, you still at 76%. We don't get 76% in one side of our elections for anything. Well, the people of Crimea made their own decision under the circumstances that they were under. And overall, they seem happy with it. By the way, I'm, my family's from the Ukraine, and the Ukraine's got some bad shit going on in it right now. The Ukraine is starting to make me feel a lot like Nazi Germany would have made you feel about 1936 right now with some of the thing, way things are going on there. And I ain't saying that Putin's Lily White and his interactions with, with, with Ukraine. But I'm going to tell you, This enemy of my enemy is my friend thing. This is something we need to get a better handle on. Most of what you hear about all the things that go on in the world that make us look like we're perfectly right and everybody else is completely wrong are bullshit. The truth lies somewhere in that all nations seek out their own best interests. If we were honest about that, maybe we'd figure out to leave other people alone a little bit more often. I just think it's time for our country to start worrying about our needs here. And stop jacking around with everybody else's shit. And if we did, we'd probably get along with the rest of the world a lot better, including some nations that are genuinely difficult to get along with. By the way, I think Russia would actually be really easy to get along with if we were logical and reasonable and, ra reasonable and rational with how we dealt with them. Okay, next one comes from Craig in California. He said, is chlorinated city water a problem for my aquaponics system? I built a simple system a few months back with a 50-gallon and 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank. Stacked an ebb and flow bed atop the battery and tossed a crap ton of feeders, many of which became fertilizer spikes. My system has an unknown quantity of feeder fish that seem fat and happy. The plants seem to do okay, but recently I've heard you mention a couple times that you, being on a well, made it easy for you to add water to your systems. I have been filling my system that sits in direct sunlight for seven hours a day with maybe 10 gallons every three to four days straight from the hose of my city tree of water. Would it be better if I was learning to clean my city water before topping it off? Thanks for all your previous help and providing inspiration for this project, Craig in California. Um, so, Craig, there's a couple of things at play here. Number one... It is most likely the case that if you were to, let's say, net all your fish out and drain that system to the bottom, fill it back up with brand new water out of your hose, throw the fish back in there, they'd very shortly die of poisoning from chlorine. And the reason is that chlorine is a poison and it poisons fish. You're adding about 10 gallons every three to four days to a system that's probably holding about... I'm going to guess 80 gallons of water. You've got a 100-gallon sump and a 50-gallon ebb and flow bed. You, you're probably holding around 80 to 85 gallons. So when we look at it that way, you're you know, doing a little bit more than 10%. And you're estimating that. So you might really be doing 8-ish gallons, really. I mean, unless you're measuring it. You know, I find that people... Yeah, it's about 10 gallons. And, you know, unless you measure it, you don't really know. Let's say it's 8 gallons, you're doing a 10% water addition. And by the time those two or three days go by, with that pump running and that ebb and flow bed running and the off-gassing and all, 
the, the, the chlorine or chloramine that you added is gone. So you're never sitting with more than 10% of your water having chlorine. And that means its effect is about one-tenth of the amount that's in city water. And no one in their right mind would tell you that one-tenth of what the cities use to chlorinate water with is sufficient to actually make the water safe to drink, i.e., kill microbiological life in the water. So it's probably not sufficient to truly harm your fish or your plants either. Is it the best thing in the world? No. Is it okay? Yeah, probably. How could you deal with it? Well, you could get some dechlorinator, and you figure out how much dechlorinator you need to add for 10 gallons of water or 8 gallons or whatever amount you actually figure out you're putting in there. Measure it with a 5-gallon bucket, for instance, and uh, see what you're really using. And then, you know, if you need to add an ounce or a half ounce of that chlorine treatment, you just add it to the hole. You don't need to treat it before it goes in. You could do absolutely nothing, and give, given you have no problems, I wouldn't see a big reason not to. I would still make sure that you have dechlorination solution on hand in case. Let's say you go out there one day and your pump went crazy and your float valve didn't work or you don't have a float valve, something clogged up, and you pumped it down and you have about 10 gallons of water left in that system, and the fish are down there just barely making it, but you quickly throw a hose in there and fill it up, well, now you're at 90% capacity coming from chlorinated water, and you will kill your fish. So it would be a good idea to have it. Now, dechlorination. There's a lot of people going, Jack, just tell them to take two five-gallon buckets, fill it up with water, and let it sit for those two to three days and dump it in. That will get rid of chlorine. But most systems now I actually treat with chloramine that doesn't off-gas anywhere near as quickly or efficiently as regular chlorine when it's just sitting there. My other concern about doing that is since your system's in a fairly warm area with lots of sunlight on it, that water in those two buckets would be probably significantly warmer, and you're probably already fighting a little bit to keep that system's temperature where it needs to be. So I'd be actually more worried about that from putting water in there that's pretty hot uh, and, and losing that, ba that, that battle with the heat than a little bit of chlorine or chloramine that's there. So you, you can do that, or you can fill up a five-gallon bucket and put in the exact amount of chlorine treatment, and then you know you're good. But here's a reason I'm not too worried about the way you're doing it. There is a system of aquarium keeping that I learned about about a year ago. It's called constant flow or constant drip. And it works like this. If you have a lot, and most of the people that do this do not have an aquarium. They have 10, 15, 20 aquariums. And the reason they do this is it makes their maintenance almost zero, where if you have that many aquariums and you're doing 20% water changes every two or three weeks, it's a lot of extra work. And just topping off that many aquariums with evaporation becomes a lot of work. Uh, I have to put about a gallon of water into my aquariums, my 255s every day each, to keep the water level up. Um, so what this constant flow does is you make sure that you know all the aquariums in a given bank are on the same level. And you drill a hole. You can drill a hole right through that glass. If you're careful, you look up on YouTube how you do it. And you bulkhead connect all those tanks and set a level in those tanks. And then you plumb that line somewhere like a sink drain or an outside drain or something like that. And if your tanks reach a level of that level or higher, the water flows out and discharges. Then you plumb another line into your fish tanks off of your water system. And you run basically drip, 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 drip drip like that into your tanks and what this does is it keeps your tanks constantly full and constantly trickling and overflow 
So your water really never gets dirty. It's always clean. It's always fresh. It's always wonderful. And I, when I researched this, my first thought was, well, what about the chlorine? And it turned out there were two schools of thought, and one of them obviously was wrong. <laughs> Not wrong in what they were doing, but wrong in the other side was also wrong. So the one side was, you have to treat the chlorine. And some people had like a dechlorination reservoir, and then they regulated the water from that. And when then that got low, it got filled back up, and then they treated it again, and that dechlorinated it. Some people were like me, they're on well, or they did rain catch, and they routed that in, or what have you. And they insisted that this constant drip and flow of chlorine would kill all your fish, because everybody knows that chlorine kills fish. And you can be right about a fact and wrong about its application. Because the other side which were dozens and dozens of people that had rigged up constant flow, that were running straight off city water, said, I've been running my system for three years, and I've never had a major fish loss. I've had a fish die here and a fish die there, and anybody that, anybody that keeps fish knows the number one rule about fish is fish die, that's what they do. Okay, Fish die, that's what they do. I've had fish that have been through abusive situations that live five years, and I've had fish that were babied, same species, keep, keep, every rule was followed and they died within a day, right? It, it's, it's just fish die, that's what they do. So unless you have some major problem, their plants, and I've seen photos of these tanks where these guys have like major heavy-duty lighting and, you know, CO2 injection and all this stuff, and they have like gorgeous, you know, it's like a garden with fish in it is really what it's like. And they've been running these things for years with that constant flow with that chlorine because the quantity is so low that the system's biology itself is taking care of it quickly enough that it's not having an adverse effect on the fish. And I think that as long as you're in that range of about 10% is what you're replacing at any one time, you'll be okay. Can you go to 20? I don't know. I don't know. I know when I ran aquariums where I did 20% water changes on chlorinated water, I always dechlorinated for the amount of water I added. But would it, would it necessarily... I got to believe some point in time when I was doing it, I forgot, and they didn't die on me. But is it 25? Is it, what, what is the crossover where the quantity, as opposed to the whole, starts to become toxic to the system? And the answer is, I don't know. So I would get a good dechlorinator... And I would keep doing what you're doing. And at any time that you have to do a significant water change, maybe at some point things start to look kind of nasty or whatever, you decide you want to vacuum out the bottom of that sump because it does get some sludge built up in it. Uh, and you want to you want to do like a 50% water change, treat it then. And as long as you're in that 10% range, since it's been working, why wouldn't you keep doing what's been working? I mean, that's that's the way I look at it. I, I It amazes me when people start telling somebody something like, well, you can't do that. Everybody knows that. And the guy's been doing it for 10 years. Well, obviously, you don't know what he knows. I get people all the time when they watch my videos. I have that one system that's built out of galvanized tanks. Oh, your fish are going to die. All oh, your plants are going to die. Galvanized and zinc, and it's going to kill your fish, and you're so stupid. You don't know what you're doing. I can't believe you're going to kill all those fish. I mean, I literally have gotten, like, snowflake tear-filled comments and emails about how horrible it is and all these fish are going to die because I'm so stupid that they're in a tank with zinc, and I'm like, it's the oldest system I have. It's been running for five years. I got fish in that are five years old. I mean, at, at, like, at what point do you stop spouting nonsense? So I know there's people that would tell this guy if you went to a former some said, oh, "This is what I'm doing." Oh, you're gonna kill all your fish. Well, wait a minute, he's not, because he didn't. 
So I think in that 10% range, you can ignore it. If you want to throw in that dechlorinator for, you know, for insurance, go ahead. I don't think it'll hurt nothing for sure. It's an expense factored in on a system your size with 80 gallons of water in it. It's not that much. If you have a system with thousands of gallons in it and you're, you know, weekly adding two, three hundred gallons or more, which I am in the totality of my systems, it can add up to a significant expense. That's what I'm talking about when I say it's easier for me. All right, so let's take another one. So next up, I'm, you know what? I'm going to say it this time because I'm tired of being told that I'm beating up on teachers um, when I'm beating up on a school system. Sorry about the background music from the article there on money. Um, but I, I constantly beat on the school system, and I say things like, I'm not talking about teachers here. Well, I've got another recent freaking hysterical tirade about how I'm so mean and hateful to teachers, and there's no group of people in the world so hated as teachers that are made up of poor women who do a really hard job for not a lot of money. And, and, and so I'm actually going to beat up on teachers here. And I'm going to beat up on teachers not because I think that they're significantly overpaid or underpaid, not for the work that they do, not for doing the best they can. I'm going to beat up on them for their bitching. They're bitching, and the fact that I think they are one of the most spoiled group of professionals in the world from a standpoint of what they think they're entitled to. So yes, if you're a teacher and you get mad when you think I'm beating up on teachers, today you can be legitimately mad because I'm legitimately going to beat up on your bullshit. This article that I'm not going to read, you can read it if you want to, makes the, the heart-wrenching case that teachers, some teachers are saying it's the only way to survive that they work at a job during the summer when they should be off. Okay, so what you're saying is to be paid a rate that is commensurate with the other professionals you think you're entitled to the same rate as, then you need to work the same number of days they do. The average person in America works 260 days a year. And that they're not contract. most con jobs have some sort of contractual obligation, five days a week, whatever it is. They're not required to work that many by contract, but they do, overtime, etc. The average teacher works 185 days a year. 260 versus 185. And the teachers are saying it's unfair for us to earn enough money to have the things that because it's not to survive. It's to have the things that you want. That I have to work those extra days that I should be off because that's what a teacher's supposed to have. And, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of like the real world. One of this article, things in this article, here's some stuff I'm, I'm just tired of from you teachers. I am, I am sick of this shit. I, absolutely just fed up with hearing this crap. Here, it's also expensive to work in education. 94% of U.S. public school teachers report paying out-of-pocket for supplies, spending an average of $479 a year. First of all, spending $479 a year to do a job that, that in the worst state in the union starts at $40,000 is not a trial. It's not a tribulation. You should see what I, when I first taught my first job in telecommunications, and I worked as a contractor for MCI for $14 an hour, and I had to pay for my travel out of that. The first thing I had to do was scrape up $800 to buy tools. And that was just enough to get the job. And over the next year, I invested another $1,000 in tools. And by the time I got to where I left that contract and went and did something better, I had gotten a raise all the way up to a whopping, woohoo, $16 an hour. Half of which pay, was paid as per diem so I could sleep in a roach motel while I was building up my education by doing real shit so that you could make a phone call. 
So I, I don't want to hear your whiny shit about less than 500 bucks in supplies that you quote-unquote need to do your job. Because I've talked to some of you guys, and usually I find out, it's like mostly it seems to be in the, in the, the, the elementary schools, and it's all kinds of decorations and shit to put in your classroom. You don't need that shit. It's not necessary for your job. If you want to do it, Godspeed. Go ahead, but don't bitch about it. But it's better for the kids and whatever. That's your opinion. You've made your choice of what to do with your money like everybody else in America. You are not required to buy jack diddly shit to do your job, really, any more than any other professional. Because that's why, well, compared to other professionals, compared to other professionals, my ass. Go ask a mechanic that works on cars what he spends on his tools. Seriously, I mean, it, it, the, the, the whole thing is bullshit. Now, does this mean that teachers suck? No. It means you've been sold into a belief that no matter what you earn, no matter what school district you're in, no matter what grade you teach, that you're underpaid and underappreciated. Let's just bull. Because inside the teaching profession, there are teachers that are stellar. You should be making double what you make. There are, pe there are teachers that shouldn't even have a job. I go to enough parent-teacher nights in my, my time as a parent to know that there are teachers that I could pull out of that, give them a little bit of training, and turn a company over to them, and they could run a company and make six figures tomorrow. They're that talented, and yet they're choosing to teach. And there are teachers that I would be skeptical about giving a job of bussing tables at Denny's. There are both extremes. And most are somewhere in the median middle, and they're earning about a middle wage for a degreed professional, and that's what middle gets you. You've chosen a profession where mediocrity is acceptable, so you will be paid mediocrity. That's the facts. And you're going to get better benefits than most Americans. You're going to get 12 weeks a year off. And you're going to get a pension that you can start collecting after 20 years of working. Many of you will be in your mid-40s, and if you choose to, you can walk away making $24,000 to $36,000 on average, yes, I checked, in pension money for the rest of your life. It could be 40, 50, or more years to not work. And in spite of that, instead of taking that opportunity in your 40s, where if you were that great at what you do, to go do something else and still draw your pension... Most of you stay for 30 to 40 years, even though, in your own words, it's like being in the middle of a, quote, war zone, end quote. See, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Again, this doesn't mean you all suck. This means your rhetoric, which if you taught the trivium instead of new math, you would understand your rhetoric is bullshit. And then the other one, this is the one that gets me. They, they have to take classes and training. They don't even get paid for it. They, they spend 30 to 50 hours a year improving their knowledge. And guess what? You and I mostly pay for it. Now, some of them pursue advanced degrees. They're going to get their master's or their Ph.D. so they can further their career, and they have to pay for that, like everybody else that pursues advanced degrees. But a lot of the shit that they take for their qualifying hours or whatever their district, they are paid... Not paid to take it, it's paid for for them. When my wife was an LPN, making like 14 bucks an hour, by the way, she had to take something like 60 hours every two or three years or something like that. 
She had to pay for it. She had to do it in her own time. And she didn't get three months a year off that she could use to do that with. She had to take it in the time that she had. When I was in telecommunications, eventually I got certifications from a company called Bixie. I had an RCDD with a LAN and an OSP specialty. I had to do 30 hours per three years of CEUs for my RCDD and 10 hours apiece for the two specialties. So 50 hours every three years, and I had to pay for it myself, and because it was a relatively specialized and advanced certification, those extra credits and shit were expensive. And I had to do it while I was working on average 80 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, so I was getting two weeks a year off, not 12. And this is the real world. And that doesn't mean you suck as teachers. That means all the shit you're bitching about is not unique to you. In fact, you have it better than most of the people you're bitching to. You can't come to somebody and go, well, I'm supposed to get 12 weeks off for summer, which is just a, a number that you've thrown out because that's what the kids get. But I have to go back a week early, so that's only 11, and then I have to take these courses. Because the, the, the woman like my wife who's busting her hump, who's still working when you're home, who's working when you're on vacation, has to take the same type of extra credit stuff that you do, and they have to pay for it. Your bullshit about having to take extra classes and shit, no one cares about. Your crap about doing your lesson plans is bullshit because the state gives you your curriculum. If you take, I've had, I have to spend five hours a week doing my lesson plans, then you suck at your job. Then you suck. Because you already know what you're going to teach. It's already prescribed. I'm up till midnight every night grading papers. Then you suck at your job. Then you don't know how to do your job then you are mediocre being paid a mediocre wage. And this is what kills you good teachers. So the good teachers are mad at me. If you paid attention, you wouldn't be, because I'm putting the finger on your exact problem. You are in a profession where mediocre is more than good enough. And the mediocre and the top performer with the same amount of time and in the same district get paid the same money. You're never going to be paid what you're worth because we can't afford to pay you what we're worth and pay your worth and pay the people next to you who are getting paid already more than they're worth what you're worth too. You, the, the 20%, the top 20% of teachers, I can't afford to pay you at the top 20% of income because I'm required by your bullshit in your system that you've set up to pay the bottom 20% as good as I pay you. So you've picked a profession that is going to result for 80% or more of the people in it, outside the administrators and some specialties, as a mediocre wage because you're allowing mediocrity to be the significant, I'm not even say it's a significant majority, a sufficient number that that's all we can afford to pay everybody. Now, If you really want to fix at least part of this problem, get on board the merit pay train. Get on board the thing where the teachers that are actually better teachers get paid better. Get on board where the local people that determine how well you're performing say, this person gets a 10% raise this year. This person gets a deduction of 4% because they are not meeting the minimum standards. Well, I'll quit. Go ahead. Then we'll hire somebody that will pay more money because they're better than you. Which is what? Again, teachers, it's the real world. You don't live in the real world. In the real world, the bottom performers get 
fired. They get laid off. They get terminated. They get pushed out the door even when they're not fired. They get drummed out. They get put in a closet somewhere until they quit. People that don't show up when they're supposed to get fired. Period. They don't get warnings. They don't get yelled at. They get fired. And the best rise and the best that don't rise in the entity they're working for go to another place that will pay them what they're worth. You live in a bubble, and that bubble has advantages and it has disadvantages. If you want the advantages, the disadvantages come with it. And again, even today where I'm saying I'm beating up on teachers, this isn't about teachers the people. This is about your freaking crybaby story about how hard you work and how underpaid you are. When we do the math and we look at what you get paid for what you actually do, you are paid as well as very highly paid professionals. Because another thing, that we, and this is not just teachers, we've convinced ourselves of this, that having your presence required equals work. You, if I am doing anything remotely associated to my job, I'm on the clock. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're really not. And stop convincing. And I'm, now I'm, I'm past teachers. Stop convincing yourself that you are. What are you producing? What are you delivering? When you're producing and delivering, you're on the clock, whether you work for yourself or somebody else. When you're daydreaming, when you're posting to Facebook, when you're sitting in study hall and your job is basically watch the room, you're not doing the job of a teacher, are you? We don't need teachers to do that job. We use you to do that job because... The number of classes you teach, you're there, you're available, and you're on salary. Again, you're back to you are in a profession that does not allow us to pay the top 20% of people better than the bottom 80%. So you're going to have a mediocre wage in the end because that's what bureaucracy creates. Sorry if you don't like it. It's true. It's another reason that the government school system is dying and the reason that most teachers will be replaced by technology within 20 years. I'm sorry, it's the case. You can not believe it if you don't want to, but it ain't going to change reality. Here's a quick and easy one. Uh, this one's from Luke. He says, what do you use for sending email updates from your site? I'm setting up a new blog for one of my websites using WordPress. I'm just wondering if you use a specific plugin to automatically send post updates to your mail list, or do you manually set up each email campaign and send manually every time you post? Currently, I use MailChimp, MailChimp for my list, but I'd like to save steps and have it automatically send when I publish a post when I'm having trouble finding anything that automatically sends. Thank you, Luke. Okay, Luke, um, I think MailChimp does that, but I'm not familiar with it, so I don't know how that you would do it. But, I mean, if you contact their support, what you're looking for is a, a, a blog broadcast, they might call it, or RSS broadcast. So your blog has what's called a RSS feed attached to it. That stands for Really Simple Syndication. And I use AWeber. And the reason I use AWeber is it works, and I've been with them so long, I'm grandfathered into a pricing program that's like stupid cheap. Uh, I think for my first 20000 it's like 10 bucks or something like that on my mail list. But they have a thing where you can compose your broadcast messages, and one is blog broadcast. And you take the RSS feed from your blog, and you drop it in there, and it formats with a template, and you set it up, and then you can say, every time there's a new post, send an email, which is what I do. 
You can say, every time there's two new posts, send an email. Every time there's three new posts, send an email. Every week, send an email with all new posts. You can set it however you want it. And then it just watches your feed. And that way, when I do a post, my emails go out automatically. That's exactly what I do. And again, the, the service that I use for that is called AWeber, A-W-E-B-E-R. There's a lot of other really great features that I like about AWeber. And one of those is they have video tutorials of everything you'd want to do. If you go into their FAQ and you look like, how do I do this? Not only will you find words that tell you how, uh, you will probably find a video, a screen capture video showing you exactly how to do it. I love that. That saves so much time. Uh, I think they're competitively priced with things like Constant Contact and MailChimp. MailChimp seems to be the most popular one. I don't know if anybody out there uses MailChimp and, and knows if they have a blog, blog broadcast feature, uh, but I, if you do know how to use it or whatever, post a comment to their show notes, and maybe Luke will see it, and maybe he doesn't have to switch from MailChimp, because the biggest reason I'm on AWeber is because I've been using it for 15 years or more. Maybe it's 16 years. And because of that, everything's all set up. I don't have to change nothing. There's no reason to leave something if it works, and, and it has worked flawlessly for me. I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can sign up for AWeber if you're interested in using it for your email communications. Now, one thing I don't like about AWeber is that it defaults to what's called double opt-in. And while it's not difficult to turn that off, they don't really want you to. So that's one of the few things in their customer service and all that they don't make real easy to figure out. If you, if you diddle around with it, you can figure it out. It's, it's not super intuitive. It's to the point where whenever I set up a new email list, I always have to kind of figure out and remember how I did it last time, but it's never that hard. So double opt-in is where I go to your website, you know, yourwebsite.com, and it says subscribe for updates. And I go, oh, I want updates. And I put in my name and my email, and I hit, and then they send me an email. And that email comes to me, and I have to click a link in that email, and then that email goes back to your system and says, not only does this person ask for updates, they click the link to verify. And this reduces spam complaints and things like that. It's also stupid, and in the end, it's very difficult to phrase one of those confirmation emails so that it doesn't rate high on spam filtering. So a ton of the time that you do this... And let that double opt-in stay in place. Your number of actual subscribers grows more slowly because people sign up for your shit and they don't see the confirmation email. And it probably isn't that important to them when they first found out who you were. So how much effort are they really going to put into it so you miss a lot of long-term subscribers that way? And one long-term subscriber could be thousands of dollars in your business over the years. And you don't know which one that's going to be. So you can't really afford to be losing them to that. So I always turn that off. And then there's something that I think is one of the most underused forms of email communications. If you're starting a new blog, my recommendation would be your first 10 posts are a 10-part how-to or why you should or something series. Once you have those, I would drop them into an autoresponder and say, sign up for my 10 tips over 10 days that tell you how to make widgets without a widget machine or whatever it is. So that when that person first signs up, even if you're not blogging at a high frequency, they get kind of those first 10. And since you've already written them, I would dress them up a little bit, enhance them a little bit, 
not just totally reuse them, maybe put a little 10% more effort into each one and make them a little bit more tailored to that new subscriber and add things like, did you know? And then over the years, as you build up certain resources, go back into those and backfill them. So all your new subscribers get the latest and greatest stuff that's available to them. Put some little sales messages in them or something like that. You know, Encourage them to take your free trial if you're something that has that or whatever. And, and then use that as a sales tool. So now the person opts into your email list. You deliver on your promise because it's easy because the system did it for you. Plus they get your daily or weekly updates. So there's a little tip with how to use the technology along with the technology that I use again, aweber.com, which will be in the show notes today. By the way, before we move on, uh, I am an affiliate for AWeber, and if you go to Spirko, S-P-I-R-K-O dot AWeber dot com, you will be going through my affiliate link, and I appreciate that if you're going to use it on my recommendation. Let's take another one. So I'm trying to use articles today, but minimize reading them. I figure if you really want the article, you, you can yourself uh, read it. I do have links in the show notes to them. This is another one from John in Moore Park who sends me, like I said, he could be a one-man research team in his own. Um, I probably use 10% of what he sends me, but it's all good. So thank you, John. Um, this is uh, at Kiplinger, and it said, Is paying off your house the right move in, lighting, in light of the new tax law? And it basically is saying that a lot of financial advisors now are saying that since they put in the SALT limits, uh, which is state and local taxes on your itemized deductions, and limit that to $10,000. So under the new tax law, you know you can deduct either your state income tax or your sales tax plus your property taxes on your income tax. And that's been the case for a long time. But what they said now is up to $10,000, which doesn't mean that you can't do it if you have 15000 bucks. It means you can only claim 10000 of it. But the other big thing is they changed the standard deduction. And if you're an individual who's single, that's $12,000. And now if you are a couple, a married couple, $24,000. So you can now deduct $24,000 off of your income as a straight, single, safe harbor deduction without itemizing your mortgage, your state taxes, and all the other little piddly shit outside of a Schedule C where you're doing an actual business, right? Because we, we can still do and should do that if we have a business because those expenses are separate from our itemized d expenses, right? We have business income, and then we have itemized expenses that a person with a job would be able to deduct, for instance. So... So many people have been seeing one of the advantages of home ownership is I can get a deduction on my taxes and use that money to invest in myself, i.e. my mortgage, uh, rather than give it to the government. And, and that was done to spur real estates and, and uh, sales and, and build a stronger housing market. And it pretty much worked. Um, under the new tax cuts, if you, they, whenever they give you something, they take some. And one was they took away... The ability of people who, you know, have very expensive homes or very high property taxes to deduct those property taxes. And this is going to increase republicanism and make people more likely to move to states that don't tax them so highly in state and property taxes. For instance, the house that I live in right now, I feel very miserable about the amount of taxes I pay on. I pay about four grand a year in property tax, which I think is insanely high. But I am aware that if this house was in New Jersey, I would pay about $30,000 a year on it. So, The salt cap doesn't really hurt me much. In fact, with the amount we itemize, we actually probably are going to do better not itemizing anymore. It doesn't even matter what the cap is now because at $24,000, we probably don't itemize up to that. We've never done it 
My accountant basically said, next year, track the business expenses and do the safe harbor. My accountant gets paid because she's good. Um, so with that being the case and people losing that mortgage because that mortgage interest deduction is in there too. People are saying, the financial advisor is saying, well, you no longer get the tax benefit, so just pay off the mortgage. Sure, you're still going to pay the property taxes, but stop paying interest to the bank. And what this article's upshot is, that's bad advice because you're doing generic advice to a multifaceted situation. I just had a discussion very similar to this about my advice on leasing cars uh, with somebody who said how wrong I was for advising that. And I'm like, you're actually making my case for me because you're telling me why you shouldn't lease a car. I didn't tell you to lease a car. I said, here was my circumstances. Here's the numbers and the math behind it. And this is why we chose to lease a forerunner, but yet I chose to buy a 2005 pickup in 20, 2009 for cash. I still own it. I haven't refinanced it. I haven't replaced it. And I'll drive it till the wheels fall off. They're two different applications, and the math was used to determine both of them. And what this guy's case, actually this girl's case, her name is uh, Laurianne L., Uh, and she makes a good case here that this is more about you need to look at how much money you have, how much your house costs, what your investment is, what your investment opportunities are, the fact that your house becomes an illiquid investment versus a liquid investment, meaning that once you put the money into your house, you can't just take it out and do something else with it, which is a little bit untrue. Assuming that your life doesn't drastically change, you would always be able to take a a mortgage on the home and take money back out of it. Unless, you know, if you lost a job or someone, you might most likely need the money, you may not be able to. So if we keep the money in investments that are liquid, we have the ability to swap to a different investment due to an opportunity. And I, I think that one also has to look at the interest rates you have on the home that you've bought when making this decision. For, interest, for in instance, my interest rate on this home is 3.5%. If I owe $200,000, and I owe significantly less, but if I owe $200,000 on it, and I had 20 years left on the mortgage, and I have a little bit more, but let's just to make life easy. If I owe $200,000 on the home, and I had 20 years left on the mortgage, and I had $200,000 in cash sitting right here in front of me right now, and I said, I'm going to take this $200,000 and pay off the house. What I'm saying is I cannot do better then 3.5% earned on that $200,000 over 20 years. And I think if you can't do better than 3.5% on your money, you need a new financial advisor. So right there, the math says, with that low of an interest rate on the house, damn the deductions. Keeping that $200,000 liquid and invested at a better rate of return than 3.5%, I come out ahead. Now here's what the contrarian argument would be. If your payment is a thousand dollars a month in principal and interest, and honestly, it would be less, because remember your and and in PMI as well, but your actual insurance on the home and your property taxes don't go away because you paid off your mortgage, right? So your PMI, if you're paying PMI, if you haven't already gotten out of it, plus your principal plus your interest, if that was a thousand dollars. To, 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 to get $200,000 in my hand at $1,000 a month, it's, it's not real difficult math to figure out how long it's going to take me to use that $1,000 that, that a month invested to get back up to $200,000, is it? 
Well, it's going to take me 200 months. It's going to take me 16 years. And this is where the person that takes cash and pays it off early says, well, you see that? That 3.4 years, that's what you saved. You three, three, almost three and a half years of mortgage payments you saved. Okay, let's do math. Off the top of my head, that's not really a full three and a half. It's like a little bit less, so we're going to call it 35 months at a thousand bucks. That's $35,000. So if your 200,000 invested can do better than 35 grand for you over those 16 years, again, you're back to ahead. Now, it's not quite that linear. Because every month you're putting that $1,000 away, you're also putting it into some sort of investment that's earning interest. And there's a point where you kind of catch up early, but that's only if you're at dead break even. Whereas if I can have, you know, let's say in that 16.6 months, it's going to take me 8 years, or 16.6 years, 16.4 years, it's going to take me 8.2 years to get back to half. So I could have had that other 100000 working in full for me for those eight years. And again, as long as it's doing a better return for me than 3.5%, I'm ahead by the numbers. Does this mean you shouldn't pay your home off? No. It just means you can't make a blanket statement because now we have to look at, well, what is our behavior with money? How like Are we going to actually make good on that? One of the reasons people make the blanket statement to pay the house off is because most people aren't good with their money. So if nothing else, and I advise you to pay your house off, at least you have your house. And I know you at least have that. You didn't piss away the money otherwise. Um, but if you're good at managing your money, then there is no case for not taking three and a half points on a mortgage against an appreciating asset. Because that's the other side of it. The house's value increases, and the mortgage's actual expense against the house's value decreases over time to such a point where it becomes almost ridiculous how cheap it is to buy your house in the mortgage payment every month. Um, my father-in-law, toward the end of his life, I think his house payment was 240 bucks. That was everything. So, I mean, that happened because he bought it so long ago, faithfully made his payments and stuff like that. So I think the the answer to the question, should I pay off my mortgage, is how much money do you have? What are your opportunities for investment? How concerned are you with liquid versus illiquid asset holdings? Uh, how close are you to your retirement? How much money do you actually have? If I'm going to dip into my retirement savings and take 10% of them and apply it and make my mortgage go away... That's one thing. If I'm going to take 50% of what I've saved for retirement so far to make my mortgage go away, that's a totally different thing. And am I doing that when I'm 45 or 55, or am I doing that when I'm 30? That's a totally different thing. So I, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the world today with wealth management is because people don't do what I said, run financial scenarios in Excel or some other spreadsheet program you're comfortable with. And if you're not comfortable with a spreadsheet program, get comfortable with one. Because what happens is people choose what appears safe that's actually risky, and they avoid the risk that's actually safe. Because if I have the money and I have the mortgage, I do have the ability, no matter what, at any time to pay off the mortgage. There's no one that's going to say, you're not allowed to pay your mortgage off now. But 
it is possible that I could have the money into the home and not be able to extract it back out due to some changes in my life. Now, there are exceptions. For recently, I talked to some of my friends, one who's a doctor, you can guess who he is, and they said one of the things that you do when you're a doctor in South Florida is you buy the absolute most expensive house you can afford, you pour as much money into it as fast as possible, you throw all your excess cash out your house to your house to pay for it. And you're like, why? That's totally irrational. And they, they say, well, you see in Florida, if you're a doctor and somebody sues you for malpractice, one thing they absolutely can never touch is your house. So if you have the capital into the house and you don't have the mortgage anymore, that is a reserve of savings that is untouchable. Now, when you retire, you may then choose to sell that home and buy a less expensive one because you no longer, basically you're creating an insurance bubble by buying real property. See, I wouldn't have known that until somebody told me. And that's why the absolute statements are usually wrong for somebody. And we have to take generalized statements and generalized advice and then tailor it through knowledge to the application of the actual situation at hand. And that means we need to be able to run scenarios based on income levels, desires, wants, needs, long-term planning, all that stuff. And I think this gal actually does a pretty good job with laying a case out for it in this article. So you can take a look at it if you'd like to. I have it in the show notes. All right, so next up, I've got one for you here from... Jesse, and this is also on real estate, he says, I recently got a traveling remote job and would love to relocate to another part of the country, currently in Seattle. Is it time to buy a single-family home in DFW, or is that overpriced? What are the pros and cons of purchasing a brand-new house versus an older one? Even a brand-new home in DFW is about 150000 lower than the equivalent in Seattle. I'll be a first-time home buyer looking to purchase four two. A house within 45 minutes of an airport. A few reasons to leave the great state of Washington. City of Seattle wants to ban anyone under 21 from purchasing an assault rifle or owning high-capacity magazines. City of Seattle wants to issue fines if you didn't properly lock up your guns and they are used in a crime. Uh, Washington wants to add a carbon tax. All firearm sales have to go through an FFL, even private sales. All firearm sales require sales tax collected, even private sales. Average price for gas is about $3.50. Boy, I don't buy gas often anymore, but I know that's high. Um, traffic sucks. Seattle is the ninth worst than, the, worst than the United States. Homeless people are everywhere. The country has the third largest homeless population in the United States. Thanks, Jesse. Um, I'm going to start off with a statement that my wife and I make often in the summer. Why do we live here again? Uh, just to point out, there's some wonderful things about Texas, and especially the North Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's an incredible opportunity as far as jobs and market and growth and people. And we have, I, I would say, the best of the best when it comes to transplants. Like People always say that they worry about people moving in from other places and messing it up. I think we get some of the best people from all around the country that move here because the companies that come here are looking for the best, and they, they, they find the best, and they bring them here. And I've seen that be the case from all the way back almost 30 years ago when I first came here, that I met people that I was like, wow, you're, you're really good at what you do, and I can see why somebody wanted to bring you here. Um, so there's some great things about it, but, but this week we're going to have temperatures of 107 degrees. And if you're coming from Seattle, just keep that in mind. Don't make that a reason not to come, but, you know, are you okay with the brutal summers that you don't have in Seattle? And you have, you know, unlike a lot of places from up north, Seattle has pretty mild winters. Um, so your winters aren't much milder here than they were there. So just keep that in mind because 
the truth is there are probably better markets with equivalent freedom right now with as much flexibility as you have than 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 Dallas. You know, you might look at Tennessee. Uh, and within 45 minutes of Nashville Airport, especially if you look to like the north and east, you might be able to do a lot better on housing. Um, so I would at least, you know, maybe Kentucky would be another place you might look uh, with a more mild climate. As you move more into the northeast of the United States, there's some wonderful places to live and even some affordable places to live. But God, the government just becomes a, a, a nightmare. You know, I mean, it really does in a lot of places. You know, I mean, there's, you know, the Carolinas are, are great, but they're heading in the wrong direction as far as government goes. Virginia is saying, you know, it's tied up in the whole uh, D.C. area, even though Virginia, Virginia is a very large state. And it's a very different state from one area to the other. But I, I'm not going to say that the best deals on real estate are in Dallas-Fort Worth right now. And I've, I've gone over it before, but we had uh, a major issue during the recession, with housing starts going almost zero, nobody building new houses, and then the townships and the counties and the cities all getting greedy and putting minimum build sizes, and that's elevated the cost of housing, specifically the three-bedroom, two-bath, you know, 1,500-square-foot house. However, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for a 4-2. And you're going to find that 4-2s sell for 10000 more than 3-2s. And it doesn't even make any sense until you realize that the people buying the three twos are at the edge of their budget. That's why they're settling. And remember, everybody that buys a house settles. Um, when you you move up into a four two, you move up into you know near that two hundred thousand dollar range or even a little bit more. Uh, new housing, they are building them here. There's lots of land left here. You can get a pretty nice place for that amount of money. And I think your investment is, and here's the key thing, relatively safe. I don't think you're going to get scalped with it, but you may see property values drop at some point. They kind of have to, but maybe they don't. And the reason for that hedging is these townships, cities, counties are not going to reduce those minimum build sizes. So we're not going to have a flood of new, low-cost, affordable housing come ever. They're not going to do it. They're, they're in the trap that they created for themselves, and they won't do it. And by being at that one level more desirable, from because th that's everybody's first house. It's a 3-2, about 1,300 to 1,600 square feet. That's what everybody buys. You go to like a 4-2, 1,800 to 2,000 square feet, you're in a lot more of a desirable, less considered a starter home space. And if you have the money to buy that, That's a better starter home right now than a 3-2 is. I, I see the weakness being in that level of market when all of those millennials move up, and if there's not enough of the Generation Y coming in to buy those homes up, I see that I kind of feel like they've been overpaid for, especially with how affordable that next tier has remained, right? Because it's going to start drawing those, those young 20-somethings, early 30-somethings, that are on their way up, that are moving from you know, $30,000 a year to $50,000 a year to $60,000 a year in their careers, they always say that that little house is just perfect and it's so comfortable. And, and, and what they're really thinking is, God, I wish I had more space. And so they're, they're lining up to move into that next tier. Well, if you're in that next tier, that's good for you. 
You see what I'm saying? So I think it's a, it's a relatively safe investment. Housing here compared to the rest of the United States is still, for anything comparable, dramatically affordable. Compared to rural America, well, of course not. There, there's no big city that has houses that are less expensive than rural America. Uh, where you, you know you don't have uh, easy access to a major airport, and you, you know you have to telecommute, or you're going to be making jackedly crap. Um, but compared to you know, like when we say major cities, I'm talking, let's say Tampa, Jacksonville, um, San Jose, San Francisco, Philadelphia, um, the boroughs around New York City, Chicago, and the surrounding areas, uh, places like Ma even you know second tier cities, Madison, Wisconsin, and stuff. Those places are incredibly expensive, compar expensive compared to what we offer. So we have good, you know, as far as good, comparatively speaking, we have some pretty good school districts. That's something to look into, too. Uh, so I don't think it's a bad time to buy. I don't think it's the opportunity that was 10 or 15 years ago. And, and like, I would say even like going back 20, 25 years, there was almost no case to be made for not buying a home in this market. Like you almost couldn't find somebody that, that, as long as they could qualify and had enough money, wouldn't be better served buying a house. Because you could buy a house and get more home for the same money as renting. And, and that just always makes sense. And right now that's still the case mostly, but not quite. Rents have gone up dramatically. The rental pressure has dramatically pushed young people out of apartments into houses But not enough yet to flip a switch where you really have to start making a decision. But the, the, the increase in rentals is starting to level to flatten. And the price of housing is just edging up just a little bit. It's really, it's not, like for two years it was just going up every week. A house was selling for a little bit more money, a little bit more money, a little bit more money. Uh, the same house. Uh, the multiple offers thing. People were buying houses without seeing them because they were tired of waiting to get a house. That's kind of chilled a little bit too. So I think it's a good time. It's not a perfect time. But again, I think you're always back to this is how you make a decision about buying a house. Can you service the debt against the house on half the money you make? Not going to say be real comfortable and happy about it, but can you? If you can do that, and if everything else lines up, it's probably the right time to buy a house. If you can't, then you really need to make sure that you know why. I'm not saying not to do it, but do you know why you're doing what you're doing? I find that people can service debt on a home on half of what they're earning. Even if something major goes wrong in their life, they're almost always, if they're willing to, to, to swallow their pride, to get a job paying a little more than half what they were earning. And that means they can get through that hard spot, no matter what. Because they're people that just get through hard spots. So that's kind of my generic advice on top of that so this next one comes from Zach in Michigan I want to play this for you real quick here's what he says I want to make a comment on your expert counsel segment from last week on automation I'm in automotive industrial sales and robotics is taking over every job imaginable on the factory floor This year for us, the Sawyer robot is taking over. See these YouTube links. The robot only costs about $45,000 and can do just about everything a human can do on the line and move around the floor with ease. This is how menial labor is getting done now, and the tech's only going to get better and less expensive. And he has two links. One's like a short promo, and the other one's like a two-minute kind of success story of, uh, of this robot. And I'm going to go ahead and play that two-minute video for you now. It loses a little something not being able to see it, but overall you get the gist. So we'll go ahead and play that now, and I'll come back and give you my thoughts on this one, and we'll wrap up for today. 
We do a lot of very tightly engineered products. We've grown our company up over the years, and we now have 38 molding machines here. We're looking forward to the robots keeping us in that growth pattern. The unemployment issue is a big thing. Wisconsin is right around 2% or under. Right now we're going through almost a revolving door syndrome with entry-level workers. Success at PMC is pretty straightforward. If Sawyer can free up a human operator, if we can free up that human and have them do a more complicated task, then we've succeeded. The software was a lot easier to use than I anticipated. We actually got it started before we hired our first automation engineer. I thought it was going to be a lot more complicated than that. Right now, we've got Sawyer making a part for a pressure gauge, and basically what Sawyer is responsible for is taking the part after it comes off the press and putting it on a CNC machine, and then take the part out of the CNC machine and put it in the box. The first step of the process is the part comes off of the press, uh, the picker drops it onto our special ramp. The reason that this ramp is here and has all these parts built up on it is actually so there's enough time for the parts to cool down before Sawyer handles them. So Sawyer takes the part and places it down on a small pedestal. It looks at the part with its camera built into its arm. Once it has the orientation info, it picks it up the correct way and then it puts it down in the nest in the CNC, holds it down, tells the clamps to fire, and then Sawyer moves out of the way and tells the CNC to run its cycle. Once there are 160 parts in the box, Sawyer actually pauses and waits for the operator to come out, swap it out for an empty box, and then the operator gives Sawyer a little push to tell it to keep going. The operator doesn't even need to hit a button. You will definitely see a few more robots. There are a lot of different opportunities in this factory for automation. I'd like to be able to walk down the factory floor and see robots on at least 20 or 30 percent of the jobs. So I, I want to pick up on a couple things here. One, if you watch this video, you'll realize how menial some of the work this robot does is. And you're thinking, I'm using a $45,000 machine to do this menial work. But if you know anything about factory work and you've looked at it over time, you can see that that's generally what you're paying a person to do. And there's a crossover point where that expensive machine becomes less expensive than the worker, especially if it's just as flexible. One of the advantages with having Joe work for me instead of Joe Bot, right, is I can say, Joe, um, I, we don't have any more of that order to fill for those those lids over there that you've been putting in the CNC machine. It's been drilling holes in. Uh, so now I need you to come over here, and I need you to take care of putting these boxes and stacking these boxes. And Joe just humps his little ass over there and starts stacking boxes. And that's all of the work it takes to get Joe to go from putting lids in the CNC machine to putting boxes in a truck. Well, this type of robot doesn't require much effort at all, no more managerial knowledge at all to get to, to switch between those tasks. So now it's not like I have a robotic arm that makes a weld on a car door or makes five welds on a car door. That every car that comes through, a car door comes through, it makes those five welds. 
And if we decide to stop making that car and make a new car, it's a lot of work to change that arm over to make different welds. And the only thing that arm's going to do is make welds. That's it. It's going to sit there and make welds of some kind. It can't stop making welds and go tighten bolts. I need another robot that's designed for the bolt tightening job. These new robots are able to be task interdependent. They can go from one thing to the next with very little programming. I heard the guy say that they were surprised that they were able to start using the robot before they hired their first automation engineer. The people they had were already able to do it. And that, the GUI as we call it, the graphic user interface type solution, is going to get easier. I mean, we've got robots already, not this particular one, but one where you can basically just basically move and manipulate the arm to do what you want and then hit a pattern and it will just keep repeating that over and over and over again. And it doesn't break down as often as a person does. Uh, they have mechanical failures. We put a new part in, it goes back to work. People have breakdowns because they're upset today. People have breakdowns because they drank too much booze last night. People have breakdowns because they showed up and they did their job, but they didn't quite perform as well this time around because they weren't feeling good. People have breakdowns because they go on strike. People have breakdowns because they feel that they're underpaid. A robot just works. If $45,000 sounds like a lot of money, I'll put this robot on the line... I almost can't afford to pay anybody less than $45,000 to do what this robot does. And you're like, Jack, I, you know, I, I work in a factory job like that. I make $15 an hour. Well, then I, you cost me about $45 a year. That's what you actually cost me. Your hourly wage to me is more like $25. By the time I match Social Security, I pay insurance on you. The days you get off, that you don't factor into your hourly wage, but I do because I'm the one that pays bills. All that stuff, it's almost impossible today to hire someone and have them cost you less than forty-five grand. In some really menial shit, they might cost you about thirty. But even if you cost me thirty, if I can buy a machine that does your job for forty-five in in one and a half years, it's my slave that works for nothing, and I have to keep paying you. Oh, by the way, you work eight hours, and even in a factory environment, you where you work swing shift, you work you know eleven to seven. Well, then somebody comes in and works you know seven to eleven, that type of thing, right? Or or what have you. Um, so I have if I if I'm going to keep that thing running twenty four seven, I'm either running two twelves or three eights, and you take breaks, right? And you got to you have, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. You have to have lunch. You have to have a couple breaks. You know what have you? Uh, if something happens to you, I could have real medical problems. I could have a long-term expense because you're on disability, and I have to keep your job available, even though I have to cover your job with a robot. I just got a new robot, and then that robot sits there, and I have you and Tom and John on swing shift on the station, and that robot works all three shifts for the cost of one of you. And in one year, I'm ahead by two. You don't think this shit's coming. It's not coming. It's here. And this is what I've said, and this is what people are going to get hit in the back of the head with this and not understand how serious this is. Right now, this company just told you what I told you a week ago. They are buying the automation because unemployment is around 2%, and they can't find the people. So they have to do more with less. And even though at that point you say, well, none of those people are going to lose their jobs. 
Well, they will. They will. Because once you get all that shit running and you start running numbers and business people always do, well, shit, we get a couple more of these uh, Jobots. If we get three more Jobots, we can lay off five Joes. And it's all paid for in a year. And then we have none of the problems that go with having Joes. We just have Jobots. And the new Jobots, unlike the old Jobots, are software-driven to the point where the Jobot company will sell us software upgrades And we won't really need to upgrade our Jobots for a long time. We might even need some new specialized Jobots to do some other things. But these core Jobots, we're going to be good for 10 years or more with simple software upgrades. What do you think is going to happen? The world is going to dynamically change in the next 10 to 15 years. In many great ways and in many ways that are not even bad They're just going to be difficult to adapt and adjust to. And that's why you cannot be overly specialized today. You have to be adaptable and fluid, and you have to stay marketable as a person versus a skill set. Now, that doesn't mean the skill sets aren't important. That doesn't mean develop your skill sets. It doesn't mean become very good at your skill sets. But it's like have more than one of them and make your marketability be this guy, this girl, knows stuff, does stuff, adapts, gets things done, and never lets anybody down. That's, that's where you'll be able to, to, to you know, dodge and duck and, 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 and dip your way through this like a prize fighter. Because if you go toe-to-toe with any one thing in it, sooner or later you're going to get clobbered. And, and that's just reality. And every time I talk about this, I hear from people that tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, all I can say is this, this CEO... Just use the exact words that I used to talk about this last week. Because unemployment's so low, we have to do this. I mean, it's almost like I pay attention to what's going on or something. I don't know. Anyway, guys, that wraps it up for this week. I want to remind you, um, you can always help support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z. Dot com, dot com, tspaz.com. Uh, I, woke, I woke up to a t- tremendous number of emails today telling me TSPAS was not working. And it still may not be for some of you. Um, so if you want to shop through TSPAS today and you can't get it to work, go to the survivalpodcast.com and one of the little tabs that you'll see at the top says TSPAS. Or one of the page options, if you're on a mobile device, will be TSPAS. Go there, and it's the same place. That's all it does is redirect to that page. And I got all the stuff that I've ever reviewed there uh, ready to go. And by the way, today's Prime Day. A lot of good deals on Amazon today, so a good day to do some shopping on Amazon. Uh, and today's item of the day is one I brought to you before. It's called Catalhula Manufacturing Tarred Bank Line. And it doesn't seem like that exciting of a thing. It's, it's, it's string with tar on it. Um, it is one of the best forms of cordage you can get. Um, I'm a big believer that there's kind of certain things when it comes to preparedness that you got to have. Uh, having a knife is one of them. Having some way to get shelter is one of them. Having some way to communicate is one of them. Having some sort of cordage and specifically some way to bind things together is another one. This is important. Uh, it's one of the common primitive skills that all primitive societies knew how to do to make cordage. Every society had something they made cordage out of in some way that they did it because it's just that dadgone important. People love TA-50 line, a.k.a. parachute cord. 
Um, there's a lot of talk about how, well, I could take 100 feet of it and make 800 feet of cord. I know you sort of can. It's not really convenient to do it. Most people that say that have never pulled the lines out to do it with before. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you what. There's a weakness in parachute cord, and that is the amount of knots you get and the bulk of it for how much it pulls, uh, how much it holds. I like parachute cord. I have it. I use it. But for most things, tarred bank line works better. The key with tarred bank line is you'd think that tarred bank line means line with tar on it. And the only place I found that to actually be the case is CMI Twine's Catalhula Manufacturing tarred bank line. Every other tarred bank line I've ever bought is black nylon string if you're lucky. And it ain't got no tar on it. And the whole purpose of it being tarred is so that it's tarred. This is what makes it hold its knots well. This is what makes it bind well. This is what makes it, if you wrap it around something to, to bind a couple things together to build a structure or a shelter, this is what makes it work. I find myself using it bushcrafting, fishing, you know, doing some bushcraft fishing, stuff like that, uh, things like that, but also just around my homestead. It's, it's a very valuable thing to have. And 550 feet of it doesn't take up much space. It doesn't take up much weight. And if you put it in a pack, it's got a hole in the middle. You can store additional stuff. It's a space conscious. You can read my whole article on it. But this, along with the removable zip ties, are two things that I could not run my homestead without. So check it out today. CMI Twines, Catahoula Manufacturing Tarred Bank Line. I personally recommend that everybody have uh, at least... The 550 reel of the number 36 line. You can get it smaller. You can get it larger for different reasons. I have a link where you can learn about all of that today at tspaz.com. And if tspaz isn't working, go to the survivalpodcast.com and go to tspaz that way. Or scroll down for any of the reviews. And remember, whenever you shop online through my links at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And remember, it is Prime Day. Uh, I just got an email, and I'll probably put a post out in a little bit uh, after I get the show out. But uh, the Anova cooker, the sous vide cooker, it's on sale for something like 120 bucks or something like that. I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head how much because I just read the email quickly in between uh, doing segments of the show. But if you've been putting off the sous vide cooker, today might be the day to do it, and you can get to their tspaz.com. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, stick ANOVA, A-N-O-V-A, and it's in the box. You'll find my review of that product, and it uh, might be the day to buy it. It might be the day to buy some other things you've been thinking about getting at Amazon because it is Prime Day. kind of sneaks up on us every year. It's like Christmas in July. Okay, song of the day today. We are going into Elton John week. Elton John is one of my favorite musicians. Uh, I suggested John Adam. He put together a week on Elton John. He did a great bang-up job with the songs that he picked, some that are very well-known and some that are a little bit lesser known. This is what I love about Elton John, man. This is, a, this is a fact. I don't know if it's more than 20 years, but I know it's at least 20 years. There's a 20-year period where at least one of his songs was in the top 40 every single week for 20 years. Elton John is not the guy with the most number one songs uh, out there in any you know measurable way. But the most consistent number of hits, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody uh, that, that's done more. And it's because his music is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. What's today's song called? Captain Fantastic and the, dirt, the Brown Dirt Cowboy, which was also the name of the album that it, it came on. And this song is really a great song to lead off Elton John Week with because Captain Fantastic is, well, Elton John. 
And the, the Brown Dirt Cowboy is Bernie Taupin, who was his co-writer in most of the songs that he's put out. These two guys are the people that made all of those hits, all of those awesome songs together. And it's really a look back on the early days of their songwriting partnerships. And I think part of the message of this song is that they'll never run out of stuff to write about. And there's a lot of sad and bad things that are actually mentioned throughout this song, even though it sounds very upbeat. And some really good things, too. And I think that's the point. The point is that he, these songs that these guys write are about what's going on in the world. So as long as there's something going on in the world, there'll be something meaningful. And as long as there's something meaningful, there's something to create art about. And, and that really sums up, to me, the, the, the music that Elton John produced over the decades, and it continues to put out just some amazing music. So here we launch Elton John Week with Captain Fantastic and the Dirt Brown Cowboy. I always say it that way, the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Again, that was the name of the album as well. It was released in 1975, so it's not new by any stretch considering they're talking about their early days of writing songs together. And that talks about, I guess, you know, it really kind of leads credence to how awesome the guy is that he's still a guy that, you know, It's still got great music even today and still well-known even today uh, all these years later. Now, the one thing about this, this always makes me think of when I hear Captain Fantastic, is a different captain. It was Captain Disaster. Uh, and his name was actually something like Desastor or Desastor or something like that. It was a French name. It was his last name. This guy was, in the, was a real captain in the military. He was in the Army. He was in the army. And, uh, but, of course, everybody said, well, his name's Disaster. We, he served. He was in one of the brigades or something over on the other side of Pan, the Panamanian uh, uh, Canal from where I was. He was over on what they call the Fort Clayton side. And I don't remember exactly what his deal was or what he did, but everybody knew about him because of his name. He was Captain Disaster. Captain Disaster. And I was always thinking, you know, if this guy gets promoted, he's going to be a freaking major disaster. And then he'll become Colonel Disaster, which doesn't seem as bad for some reason. But he'd be the only person in the world that would literally get downgraded when he got promoted to General because he'd be a General Disaster. Now, some of you think I just made that up. No, that's a real thing. And I have to say this. Some people, you have to wonder about their thought process. If my last name easily sounded like Disaster, and I was going to join the military at all, at all, I would change my freaking name before I did. Just knowing the misery you're going to go through in your initial training. But if I was going to be an officer, become lieutenant disaster, captain disaster, major disaster, I think I'd change my name unless they wanted me to make, maybe make a movie out of you like they did about Major Payne back in the day. Um, and it also makes me think of another group, <laughs> I guess group you'd say, uh, two guys in the military, It was Captain Fantasky, his last name was Fantasky, and his executive officer was Lieutenant Steele, which by itself, not bad. When you are the XO and the CO over you is Captain Fantasky and you're Captain Fantasky and Lieutenant Steele, you kind of sound like something from the League of Justice or something like that. Anyway, just a little humor to go with today's stuff. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Captain Fantastic 
Raised and regimented, hardly a hero. Just someone his mother might know. Very clearly a case for conflicts and classes. Two teas, both with sugar, please. In the back of an alley. While little dirt cowboys turn brown in their saddles, sweet chocolate biscuits and red rosy apples in summer. For it's hay make and hay mow. Do the people see anything? Do all the chances in life for little dirt cowboys? Should I make my way out of my home in the woods? Brown dirt cowboy, still green and growing. City slick captain, fantastic the feedback, the honey the hive. Good. 